So if I was to say, and a lot of people do these things at this time of year, if I was to say to you, end times prophecy, what images would come to your mind? What thoughts and ideas? Maybe a chart I could put up here that only Albert Einstein could understand. Maybe the number 666, the mark of the beast. Maybe the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Maybe demons out of the abyss. Maybe people that want to die and cannot die. Do you know those are in Revelation? People that want to die and cannot die. So zombies are actually biblical. They're way back there. I don't know what comes to your mind when I say that, but for me and the church culture that I grew up in, I had some craziness there. So we moved to Grants Pass in 1976, and we were part of this little mini exodus out of Northern California to Grants Pass because the nuclear war was coming. And I don't know if you know this, but Grants Pass is situated in such a deep bowl that the nuclear fallout will just fly right over the top of us. Did you guys know that? We came here for that reason. It's why there's so much fog in Grants Pass. That's the reason why. Like Charity and I and our family went to Medford yesterday and it felt like I'd just gone to Hawaii. Like the sun, people in short sleeve shirts. Wow, <laughs> it still exists, right? So Grants Pass is like this bowl. And so we moved here to escape from the coming impending nuclear war and disaster. So that's why we got here. And then we got into a church that told my mom, it's coming, get ready. So they convinced her to buy 600 pounds of this food that wouldn't perish for seven years, that you could just sit there and it's, gonna, it's sealed up and it would just be there. So we had in our little teeny shed behind our house, this pallet stacked up with 600 pounds of food. But in year number one, it didn't come. And year number two, it didn't come. And year number three, it didn't come. So year number four, my mom said, that's it, we're eating it. <laughs> she was way too frugal to let that go to waste. So we opened up a bag of it and it was wheat berries. Have you ever had wheat berries? Oh my goodness. George Washington Carver came up with 300 uses for the peanut. My mother came up with a thousand uses for wheat berries. <laughs> wheat berry stew, wheat berry cereal, wheat berry casserole. When it was nice and frosty outside and you could slip on the sidewalk, just throw wheat berries out. They help you get traction. Show and tell was take a 50-pound bag of wheat berries. No one's seen that. Trust me. Take it. <laughs> right? So we ate that entire 600 pounds. It's what we refer to in our family as the great heavily wheat berry tribulation period. <laughs> I don't know if I'd rather go through seven years of tribulation eating wheat berries or just die. I think I just prefer death. Just kill me. I'm not doing that again. I did that once. Okay, so I have a heritage when it comes to end times prophecy of just like, eh, oh no, eee, this is scary, right? And maybe that's some of your heritage too, where we talk about these things and it's get your gold and get some guns, go buy some property, dig a hole and live in it. That's what's because you know, it's coming. So maybe that's some of you. Here's what I want to try to do today. And I don't care the spectrum that you land on when it comes to end times prophecy, because there's all kinds of different ways to interpret the Bible. I don't care if you're pre-mill 
or if you're post-mill, or if you're classical pre-mill, I don't care if you're dispensationalist or progressive dispensationalist, or if you're kingdom come or kingdom gone, or herald camping, or Mayan calendar following full. I don't care where you land. This prophecy covers them all. I think it's actually the umbrella that will go over all of them. And it's prophecy according to the Torah, according to Moses. And there is, we're going to see this thing. There's this marker. And then there's a context that is identical. And it shows up three times in the Torah. It's this marker. And then it's a sage who gathers an audience and then goes into poem. And in each one of these, it's saying, here's the future. Here's what's coming. And it's brilliant. And my hope is that when you see what's being prophesied in the Torah, that it will keep you from going out and buying 600 pounds of wheat berries. That's my goal. And if it doesn't prevent you from that, then I'll pray for your children because they'll need it, all right? So I have not geeked out in Genesis yet. I've kept that down deep inside of me. This is my last message in Genesis. I'm gonna geek out a bit. So uh, you're gonna get geeked on for a little bit. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 49, where we see the first time this little marker is found And it's the sage talking to an audience, telling them, here's what's coming. Genesis 49, verse one. Then Jacob called his sons. Jacob's our sage, sons are the audience. And he said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. That word in the days to come is the Hebrew, bekerit hayamim. It should be literally translated end of days. Does anyone have that translation in their Bible? Yeah, I think New King James is about the only one that translates it end of days, which is the right way to translate it. It's end of days. I'm gonna tell you guys This audience, I'm going to tell you what's going to come at the end of days. So Genesis is brilliant. Genesis 1-1 begins with, in the beginning. Genesis ends with, at the end of days. I'm covering the whole thing. Brilliant, brilliant book, right? So here's what's happening. Jacob, 147 years old. And Jacob has witnessed something in this section of scripture. The section goes from chapter 12 to 50. It begins with a promise to Abraham, in you, all nations will be blessed. That there's this Abrahamic covenant. But what you see about the people is this, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12, there's a problem with them. They have the promise, but man, they just keep making mistakes. Abraham lies about his wife a couple of times. He sleeps with Hagar, has Ishmael, just, oh, that's a bummer. Abraham or Isaac lies about his wife as well, does what his dad does, plays favorites with his boys, gets them all messed up. Jacob is just a complete mess his whole life, right? So what you see in this section is the carrier of the promise is also part of the problem. So that's this this theme here. Yeah, they've been given this incredible promise, but man, they keep blowing it. They don't look like what we expected them to look like. So Jacob now This sage at 147 years old says, here's our hope. Here's our hope. And he begins to point to who the line will actually go through, which is his son, Judah. And he begins to say something prophetically to Judah. Look down at verse eight. 
Judah, your brother shall praise you. The name Judah just means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. You're gonna be a king, right? The, the other guys are gonna bow to you. Judah is a lion's cub. So this king is a lion's cub. There's a prey, my son. You've gone up. He stooped down. He crouches as a lion. And as a lion is who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garment in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So now we get the hope. Jacob knows this. He's seen it, this failure. They're part of the problem. But he points forward to Judah and says, there's gonna come a lion king. Literally, that's it. There's coming a lion king. And this idea is actually picked up in Revelation 5, 5, where Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's that fulfillment of that. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So there's coming this king. And I know in America, whenever I talk about kings, we have this thing, we don't like kings. The last king we had to deal with, man, we went out into a harbor and we took all of his tea and we threw it overboard. Like, we just don't like kings. They abuse their power, taxation without representation. We don't like kings. So there's a part of us that like, when you hear about a king coming, mm, I don't know if I want that king. And the Bible's really honest about the kings of the Bible. So the first king in the Bible that rules Israel, his name is Saul. Is Saul a good guy or a bad guy? Well, he prophesies, God's spirit falls on him and he prophesies, well, that's good. He rallies the troops and saves a bunch of people time after time again. He, he seems like a noble warrior, but then he lies about some stuff. He kills a bunch of priests and then he tries to kill David and he doesn't obey God. So yes and no. How about King David? Is King David a good guy or a bad guy? Man, he kills Goliath and um, he's a great warrior. He, he protects a bunch of people. He seems noble in character. He writes the book of Psalms. Um, he seems to love God, but he also loves another man's wife and has a dude killed so he can take her. Yeah, so yeah, I don't know if he's good or bad. He's, yeah. How about Solomon, good guy or bad guy? He's smarter than all get up, right? He writes the book of Proverbs. He builds the temple for God. God's like, hey, that's a really good job. But he has this woman problem too. He's got a thousand of them. And he gets into idolatry and you read the book of Ecclesiastes and he loves to party, man. Dude loves wine, loves to get drunk. So, yeah, right? There's this, you, you read and what you see is this. God had this design for kings in Israel, but the kings keep succumbing to the temptation of power and money and wealth and women. And they start to act just like the pagan kings. So the Bible's really honest about them. They're flawed because the carries of the promise are part of the problem. But this king, look what's gonna happen. Verse 10 says, the scepter won't depart from him. The scepter is the thing the king holds, gives him authority. And then the final phrase in verse 10 is, is it's, it's a translation nightmare again. It says, until tribute comes to him in my translation and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Here's what it should say. It's the word Shiloh. The ESV just doesn't even translate it for some reason. 
It should say this, Shiloh means this, to him whom it belongs. So what it's saying is this, there's gonna come a king, rule belongs to him. It's always belonged to him. And when he rules, all the people will say, I'll follow that guy, I'll obey him. The nations will obey. That his rule is such a rule of righteousness and justice that he doesn't get tempted by money and power and abuse of it and women. He doesn't succumb to the things that all the other kings has. He doesn't do that. And because of that, the nations say, we will follow that king. He's a different kind of king. And then, then on top of that, verse 11 says, when he comes, you're gonna tie your donkey to the best vine you have. Makes the best grapes in the world. Now, what's a donkey gonna do when it's tied to your best grapevine? Is he gonna be like, you know, my master really worked hard for those and that's really what he needs to, to make money and to live life well? No, what's he gonna do? He's gonna devour them. What it's saying here is, and some people say that verse 11 is actually violence because of the end is he dips his vesture in the blood of grapes. No, these things are saying, this king brings so much prosperity that you take your donkey, your lowest beast, and you just tie him to a vine and let him devour him because you have so much plenty. You have so much wine that you make a barrel of it, you stick a hose in it and just ride it right into your washing machine because you've got so much wine. It's prosperity like you could not believe that this king brings that. And so if you remember that and you read forward into the gospel of John, Jesus, it says his first miracle at a wedding at Cana is what? Turning water into wine. And the water was held in what kind of containers? Wash pots, where you'd wash yourself. It is a echo back to this saying, I'm gonna make, he made 180 gallons. I'll make water like water. I'm gonna make wine like water. I'm gonna make it so common, it's gonna be held in wash pots. I'm bringing this. So those ancient people would remember that and then would get this thing. Oh my goodness, Jesus is doing exactly what the one Jacob prophesied would do. He brings such prosperity. So we miss these things because we're, we, we don't have donkeys. Anyone got a donkey in here? Justin Buchanan does. Yeah, few people. We don't have donkeys. Like everyone had donkeys. So we live in a world that you have to almost take these ideas and try to bring them into the 21st century. So here, here's how you do this. Has anyone seen the Instagram called Rich Kids of Instagram? Don't look at it. It's horrific. It's these shallow, ostentatious displays of wealth. It's, it's totally shallow. But I grabbed two pictures because th this is what modern day verse 11 would look like. So here's the first picture. Right? We make end tables out of recovered barn wood. They make an end table out of $100 billion, eating guacamole off of it, right? They're just like, look how much money I have. Okay, then the next one. What car to drive? Hmm, let's see here. I don't know what car to drive. I think someone added it up and they said, that right there, that, that's worth $3 million. What car to drive? Oh, I don't know, you know, my Bugatti or my Porsche or my Lamborghini or my, I don't even know. I don't even know the names of some of the cars, right? So verse 11 of Genesis 49 is that right there. It'd be like, what? That's crazy. You made an end table out of cash? Yeah. So this one that's coming, he's gonna rule in such a way because it belongs to him 
that will want to obey him. He's gonna bring prosperity like you could not imagine. And then verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. It's health. It just brings health. So it'd be like Lake Wobegon. You know the little phrase that they always say before the Lake Wobegon? Where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. Okay, that's this time. It's like, yeah, strong, healthy, above average. It's coming. That's what's coming. So Jacob, when he looks down the tunnel of time, looks through his son Judah, he knows the promise is coming through them. He sees this ruler that will rule in righteousness, and his righteous rule will be so good that people will say, we want to obey you, and then in that obedience, there'll be such prosperity and health for the nations that it's unparalleled. How's that for a prophecy update? That's Genesis chapter 49. Okay, so now let's skip forward to the next one. It's Numbers chapter 24. Again, it's the same pattern. Sage gathers an audience, breaks into poem with a little marker, that same little marker. And I'm gonna have to help you on a couple things real quick on it. So start in verse nine. Numbers 24, verse nine. He crouched, he laid down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless him and cursed are those who curse you. Now, what do those phrases bring to mind? Do you remember these should bring to mind something? The Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12 is, hey, People that bless you will be blessed. People that curse you will be cursed. So this is what, if you've ever read a website and you'll go down and there'll be like a little phrase in blue. And if you click on that little phrase, it takes you to another website, right? Have you ever seen that? It's called a hyperlink. That's what the Bible does all the time. This is a hyperlink. It's telling you, hey, pay attention. I'm just gonna give you a little phrase, but I'm referring to the Abrahamic covenant and everything in it. It's a hyperlink to that. And then the lion part is a hyperlink back to Genesis 49. Okay, so Balaam in his prophecy is hyperlinking back to the book of Genesis. Hey, this is what I'm talking about. And these little phrases tell you to read the whole story and check it out, all right? So then here's your audience, verse 10. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. Balak, here's who he is. He's an evil pagan king that wants to curse God's people. Keep that in mind. He's an evil pagan king whose sole desire is to see God's people cursed. Does that remind you of anyone in the Bible? It should, he's representing something, right? And he actually says at verse 10, I called you to curse my enemies. I called you to curse them, okay? So that's his audience, his Balak, bad evil guy that just wants to curse God's people. So then picking up verse 14. And now behold, I'm going to my people. I'm leaving. I'm tired of you, Balak. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Becherit, Hayamim. Same marker. End of days. So Balaam now talking to this evil dude that just wants to curse God's people says, listen to me. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen to you from the people that you're trying to curse. So then he goes, verse 15. He took up a discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, 
the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I just love that. He just has to make remind everybody, this is my position, by the way. <laughs> I should start out all my sermons that way. This is Matt Heverly, whose eye is uncovered, who has the knowledge of the Holy One. Oh, man. <laughs> it's a little, it's interesting. I, the Bible is so awesome. It's just so awesome. Verse 17. So here's where he really should have started. I see him, but not near. I behold him, but not now. What's he saying? I see something out there and it's coming. It hasn't arrived yet, but it's coming, right? A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. What's he referring to there? The scepter is a hyperlink back to Genesis 49, the ruler that's coming. I'm seeing him. He's not here yet, but he's coming. I'm seeing this one that's coming. And then look what he says. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. When you hear the word crush, what should your mind think about? Genesis 3, 15. The seed of the woman is going to be, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. So he is, once again, hyperlinking back to that as well. This one that's coming, I, don't, I see him, he's not here yet. He's gonna rule, he's gonna have rule, he's gonna have the scepter and he's gonna crush the forehead of Moab, break down all the sons of Sheth, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir and his enemy shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Here's what's happening. Balaam now, hyperlinked back to Genesis, building on that is saying this. The other thing he's going to do is he's gonna trash evil. So when you have Balak, his one goal is curse God's people. And then he begins to look out at these other nations that have also wanted to curse God's people. And he rounds them all up. Balaam does this. And this is a very common thing that the Bible does. That it'll grab kind of a group of people and say, these represent something. Balak, Seir, Edom, these represent evil. The one that's coming is gonna deal a death blow to evil. He's going to destroy evil. So Balaam builds on this idea that the king that comes is gonna rule in such a way that people want to obey him. He's gonna bring prosperity and health, but on top of that, he's gonna deal with evil. How cool is that? And I think in the Bible, the New Testament, Jesus actually references this in a way. It's the gospel of Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus there has an audience and he begins to ask them, who do men say that I am? And they have these ideas. And then Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of God. You're the Genesis 49 guy. That's who you are. That's called the messianic package. You're that guy. And Jesus says, ah, oh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And Jesus is saying all this in a very, very unique spot. It's called Caesarea Philippi. And there was this massive rock. It's massive to them. There's this big rock there. At the bottom of this rock, there's a crack in the ground. And in front of that crack in the ground, there was this temple that would have stood at Jesus's time to the God Pan. Have you guys seen the God Pan? You know what he looks like? He's the God that has goat, court, hind color all the way down, and then man all the way up, but then he has horns like a goat. It's the representation today 
that we have of Satan. So if you picked up a 1970s album of Ozzy Osbourne, it will have a picture of Pan on its front and it's representing Satan. It's the main representation for Satan, God Pan. And he was the God of sex. And the word Pan, it means everything. Pantheism, Pan means everything. And that's exactly what happened in that temple. It was pansexual, gross. The rabbis forbade Jews from even going there. It was the red light district of Amsterdam. Don't go close to that. So Jesus is standing right in front of that rock. The crack underneath the rock was called the gate of Hades. We call it the gate of hell. And then the water that flowed out, it came right to the temple of Pan. It was the worst place on earth. And so Jesus is standing there saying, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Balaam guy. And Jesus says, that's right. He goes, on this rock right here, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is what Jesus is saying. I came to do what Balaam prophesied at the end of days. I came to crush the serpent. That I didn't leave heaven, and I didn't leave glory, and I didn't leave that place to make nice people nicer. I came to storm the gates of hell and to reclaim what rightfully belongs to me because rule belongs to me. I came to reclaim the people that belong to me and pull them out of it. And I'm starting in the worst place you can imagine, right here at the gate of hell. That's where I'm gonna build my church. And if you look at what Jesus did during his life, who did he hang out with? Was it the proper people, the religious people, the good people, the well people? No, he hung out at the gates of hell with the prostitutes and the drunkards and the sinners. Because he said, that's where you start. I'm building my church right here and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We will win. The idea of that is known as Christus Victor. Martin Luther said it was the most important accomplishment on the cross. That Jesus did the Genesis 3.15. He crushed the serpent and now the serpent is in its death woes, knowing its time is short. That's what Jesus does, the Christus Victor. I love that. So it's building now. Prophecy update number one, Genesis 49. This great king's coming. Prosperity, Eden-like times, health, you won't die. On top of that, he's going to deal with evil. He's gonna crush evil. Evil will be dealt with. How cool is that? Hopefully that keeps you from buying 600 pounds of wheat berries right there alone, right? All right, so the next one and the final one is Deuteronomy 31. So the book of Deuteronomy, if you don't know, is an eight-hour sermon by Moses. Have you ever heard an eight-hour sermon? I mean, just think about that. A guy talking for eight hours straight. I'm long-winded. I don't even think I could do that. I'd be like, man, this is impossible, right? He gives an eight-hour sermon, all kinds of commands, exhortation. Please follow God. Please choose life. Don't choose death. Like, just please with them. And then in chapter 32, here's what Moses does. He sings a song. And you could title the song this, you're gonna fail. I know I preached eight hours to you, but even though I said all this stuff to you, you are going to fail. Because he has walked with them for 40 years and he has seen the pattern in their lives of good intentions that lead to no end and lots of failure. And so Moses just says, I know I preached to you at eight, for eight hours straight, 
you're going to fail. So after his preaching, he sings the blues, right? So here's our marker again to set it up. You got Moses the sage, Israel's the audience, and the poem is chapter 32. And our marker is found right in verse 29 of chapter 31. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, Bekarit, Hayaming, in the end of days, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands. You can do evil. You're going to fail. And then he sings this song. Verse three, chapter 32. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. God's been so good and so generous to you, but verse five, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. By the way, you want to geek out? Verse 8. Deuteronomy 32 is one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible. Verse eight is the most fascinating verse in chapter 32. It's unbelievable. Just look at some commentaries. What they say it means, it's unbelievable. I think I could do an eight-hour sermon on verse eight. So it's brilliant. Geek out in your own time. Then here's what's coming for you, verse 14. Curds from the herd, milk from the flock, fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, the very finest of the wheat, Rich kids of Instagram saying right here, you're gonna have abundance. You drink foaming wine made from the grape, the blood of the grape. That's a reference right back to Genesis 49, right? So you can have all this abundance. God's been so good to you. What's gonna happen? Verse 15. But Jeshurun, that's a nickname for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook. God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, to whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and forgot the God who gave you birth. It goes on and on and on. God's been so good to you. He helped you prosper. But in your prosperity, you forgot about him. You turned to other things and to evil things. You rebelled. Because the carriers of the promise are part of the problem. And you see that echoed throughout all the Old Testament. Those that have this promise 
still fail time and time again. So what is God gonna do? He can bring a righteous ruler who will rule well, won't get succumbed to the power and problems of other guys. He'll do that. He'll bring prosperity. He'll bring health. He'll get rid of evil. But there's still a problem. It's you and me. We're gonna fail. In Genesis 1 and 2, that's what you have. You have prosperity. You have good rule. God's ruling. You have everything given to them and they blow it. So God can set up this great system and guess what? We'll ruin it. We'll destroy it because we're fickle. And so that's what Abraham, or rather Moses is saying right here. It's gonna be really good, but, but you're the problem. So what's he gonna do? Look at the last verse of this song, verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. By the way, if you have a notation Bible, this is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to translate. There'll probably be a note on every single verse or every single line of this verse. In my Bible, it's just, right? So I'm going to try to, I'm gonna translate it for you the correct way, all right? (laughs) I'll put a little Balaam on you. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. That final phrase right there is huge. The word cleanse is the Hebrew word kofar. It's where we get the day of kofar, the day of atonement. It's this massive word. It's a packed word. It means Cleansing, it means propitiation, which means uh, an end of wrath against you. Propitiation. It means atonement, uh, that your sins have been atoned for. It means forgiveness. It's this incredible word. And so literally it says this. He kofars his people and the land. What's the hope? You got a righteous rule, end of evil. What's the hope for me and for you? What's our hope? Our hope is that the cancer that's infected all of us, that causes us to have these great intentions and fail, we're kofard, right? Do you have great intentions and you can't follow through on them? New Year's resolutions, anyone make one? How you doing on them? So New Year's Day, my wife and I, we took our kids up into the Cathedral Hills right behind our house to go hiking. I thought I had moved to Southern California. There were people everywhere. Man, they had all on their Christmas jogging outfits and their fancy watches, and they're just, woo, they're getting after it. I told Charity, in two weeks, we'll have it back to ourselves. Because all that good intention, just like, ah, oh, I don't want to go today. It's foggy today. I don't want to go. I made one New Year's resolution this year. I said, in 2018, I am not going to eat sugar. Sugar is from Satan. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. So Friday night, my father-in-law had brought over this Ziploc bag of fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. And he'd put them in a clear Ziploc bag. At least he could have put them like in a paper brown bag so I couldn't see them. And he set them right on the counter. And like, I'd walk by them all day just like, oh, I'm not doing it. No, I'm really strong. I'm not eating that. Well, 10 o'clock at night, I'm walking, I'm hungry. I'm like, oh, there they are. So I literally, in order to try to get my mind off the chocolate chip cookies, I went in the pantry and I'm like trying to find something to eat. All I could find to eat, 
seaweed crisps. <laughs> Have you ever eaten a seaweed crisp? Don't. I'm like, ha, 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 Chocolate chip cookies are better than seaweed crisps. I'm just going to let you in on that secret. <laughs> so I made a new New Year's resolution that moment. I said in 2018, I will eat less sugar. Because <laughs> you can't measure that one. I think I made it. I think I'm, I think I'm good. I think I ate less sugar this year. Okay, that's in all of us. But these drives and these desires for greatness and then, and then the chocolate chip cookies appear and all our will goes out the door. So what's gonna change us? His kofar, that he will grab a hold of us and he will cleanse us and he will atone for us and he will forgive us and he'll begin to transform us into his same likeness. And that the Bible says this, when he appears and when we see him, we shall be like him. Finally, we'll be a new created humanity that can exist under his righteous rule, free of evil with him. That's the end of days. That's what's coming for you and me. That's good news. So what is this supposed to do for us? Have you ever read the book, The Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court? Who's read that? Man, you've got to read that book. It's awesome, it's Mark Twain, 1880s, an engineer somehow flashes back in time, 1300 years or whatever, goes back to King Arthur's court and he just slays it there because he knows the future, right? He's put in prison, they're gonna kill him. And then guess what? He knows that the eclipse is coming. He's like, I'm gonna blot out the sun. If you kill me, boom, the sun goes up. They're like, ah, save us, right? Which is actually based on a true story. Columbus did that in the West Indies. If you didn't know that, just totally useless random information that popped in my head. I gotta be careful of those things. So he slays it, why? Because he knows the future. He knows what's coming. We're supposed to be a group of people that are shaped by Genesis 49 and Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy 32 that we know the future and we slay it. We know the king has come. The kingdom has been begun. We know that the serpent who used to have power has had his head stomped in and he's now writhing in death woes. And that no matter what the gates of hell may bring against us, it will not prevail because greater is he that's within us than he that's in the world. And even though we have these great intentions that don't seem to be there, we keep trusting in the gift of God's spirit that God says it's not by might and not by power. It's not by New Year's resolutions and your good discipline that you're gonna be changed. It's by my spirit. And that we begin to rest and abide in the power of his spirit that brings his inaugurated kingdom right now to our lives. We start to live that. We let these truths actually seep into us so they become one with us. The word becomes flesh and it transforms us. Matt, that's pie in the sky thinking. Just because that's coming way out there that doesn't change my day today. Oh, I disagree. Imagine two people get the same job. They are working in a sweatshop. Literally, it's a place that makes sweats. And their job is to sew the extra large tag on a pair of sweats all day, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That's all they do. Till their fingers bleed, 
The boss is just a maniac. I think he's the antichrist. He keeps telling them 15,000 sweats is not enough. I need 25,000 out of you. So they work and work and toil and it's just a bummer. Total bummer. One of them is paid minimum wage and that's it. The other one though is told, listen, I know it's minimum wage right now, but if you'll stick this through in December of 2018, I'll give you $5 million. Will that reward change how that individual goes about his work week? The hardships, the ups and downs. Oh, absolutely. It'll transform them. He'll be able to, verse 43, rejoice in the heavens. He'll be able to do what Colossians 3 tells us. Put your mind up there because it changes down here. That's what happens to you and me. We have to remember this is what's coming for us. That you and I one day will stand beside our righteous king and rule and reign with him forever. C.S. Lewis would say, if we saw what we would become, we'd be tempted to worship it because we'll be something you cannot imagine. We'll live in prosperity with jobs, with responsibility that you cannot fathom. That's coming for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And all the kind of angst in us that's like, oh, I wish I could do better. I wish I could do better, but I'm not quite better. All that will be taken care of because the final work of kofar of atonement, of transformation will have happened and we will fulfill every desire that we have in our heart without failure. That's our goal. If you let that truth seep into your heart that this is the end of days, you won't buy 600 pounds of wheat berries. You'll know that these circumstances, even though they might be rough in 2018 or great in 2018, they're not my end. My end is this, and it's brilliant, and it's awesome, and it's coming for every believer in Jesus Christ. That's my prophecy update. And when we come to this table, Jesus would say he would not drink again of the wine of the vine until the coming kingdom. It was Jesus saying, I'll be back. And I'm gonna bring with me a kingdom you cannot believe. And when we eat and we drink, We're supposed to remember that and taste just a little bit of it in anticipation. And it becomes the anchor of our soul that keeps us no matter what the storm may bring to our bow. That's the hope. So I hope that you guys know our king has landed. The kingdom has begun. It started inside my heart, inside your heart, those that believe in Jesus. And we are now capable, Jesus says, of doing greater things than he has done for his kingdom. And that's what transcends every problem we have. And so, Father, this day, I pray as we sample the kingdom at the table today, I pray that every person in here who has believed in your son had his sins atoned for, had his heart changed from a rock to flesh. And that heart has now become the tablet by which you write your will, that we want to obey the righteous rule of our king. I pray that as we eat and drink, you would give us power and strength, that we could live the good godly desires that you put inside of us, 
that in 2018, because we know our future and we know our hope, that we would slay it. No matter what our circumstances might look like. So may we eat and may we drink strength, power, forgiveness, atonement, transformation, kingdom. May we eat and drink that power today, I ask in your name. Amen.